This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu. I thought I would give like a 30-second introduction to what CBIs are about, and then I would go ahead with the talk, and then I would leave plenty of time for questions and answers. Obviously, not that you need my permission, but you should keep eating uh, while we do this. And then, uh, but no matter what, we really have to finish at uh, 1.20 because there's another class in here, and some of you have other classes and and so forth. So uh, here's the idea of uh, Chicago Best Ideas, although... It's been broken a little bit, but it won't be broken by me. Um, we had a 100th anniversary of the law school, and the idea was, well, lots of famous things happen in this building. Let's uh, have these lunches, better lunches than usual, I might add. Let's spend extra money on lunches and invite students, especially 1Ls, but really everybody. And the idea would be like, uh, okay, uh, who was Coase and what was it about? Like, you know, let's discuss Chicago's best ideas over time. But you can picture what happened. Like eventually, faculty who did these talks uh, would say, uh, Chicago's best idea? Well, that's my best idea. And then they would talk about their current work in progress. So I've moved a little bit in between. And uh, I will talk a little bit about the Coast Theorem in the middle, but it'll be a little bit about, here's an idea about law quite generally. And um, you know, it happens to be of interest to me and my work. But the idea is like it should be of general uh, interest. Okay. So, uh, and then they came to be called CBIs, and I don't know, because I started them, I have this like conventional right to give the first one, but you should go to all of them. And I'm sure they will soon take this right away from me, or something like that. Uh, and the lunches will decline in quality, uh, and all that. But you know, that's just how institutions are, are run. That's a little bit of a hint about what's coming about, about law. Okay, so uh, here we go. Uh, let's just start with a few, I think, obvious uh, points. So the amount of law we have has grown incredibly over time. Like, I don't really want to give you a lot of evidence about this, but that you could think of it many ways. Like, there are more, lo- even though like seven law schools have closed down recently, a bunch of law schools are opening up. There are more law schools. Most of these law schools have increased number of students. There are more lawyers than ever before. There are more cases than ever before. There are way more judges than ever before. There are more laws passed by governments. I mean, you get the idea. I think if you don't think the amount of law has grown, you won't really like uh, the rest of this talk. You could give your seat to somebody else. But uh, the amount of law has really grown. I'm going to take that uh, as a given. And the question is, uh, my question for, the, for today really is, why is this? Why has the amount of law uh, grown? So let's start with you know a very Chicagoish thing. You could just say, well, let's see what... Uh, Economists would say, or psychologists would say, let's start with the economists. Um, they would basically say, well, this is not surprising. Law is a good, and goods, uh, when they're pretty good, grow over time. Like, uh, we have a lot of cars, we have a lot of iPhones. You know, these things are pretty good. People like them, and they grow over time. Eh, you know, that's not a very good explanation. First, a lot of things that are good, oh, economists would also say, they grow over time, people enter the market, the price goes down, and then they really grow over time. More people can afford them, more people can buy them. So like more people have uh, big houses, more iPhones maybe are really the best example. Shoes, you know, famously, like, you know, shoes, you know, people used to have like one pair of shoes they would wear like three days a year. And now, you know, people have lots of shoes and the price of shoes has gone way down and so forth. So it just goes on and on and on. I noticed people like looking forward. Maybe we should have a whole lecture on shoes. That would not be bad. Shoes are actually pretty interesting. But okay, you, you get the idea. Uh, but I don't know, that's not really very satisfactory. First of all, the price of law has not gone down. The price of law has gone up. So it's a little bit surprising that there's more law than ever before. Uh, second of all, not everything that is popular and the price goes down and people buy more of it, almost everything you can think of like that levels off. iPhones are a good example, or smartphones in general, like there's really dramatic rise around the world, and then it kind of levels off. You know, children are pretty good, but the number of children that people have has leveled off over time, or even gone down. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't think of that in advance, and so maybe it's like offensive to say that children are a good, or something like that, but, but you are. And, um, 
you know, that's how your parents think of you. So there are a lot of things that are very popular. You know, trains were like, you know, an incredibly good invention. They went up, 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 up. Price went down, further up, and then they leveled off or maybe even a little decrease in that. So, you know, I, I find this sort of standard economics explanation not very convincing and certainly not convincing for law, which has gone up in price uh, rather than leveled off or gone down uh, in price. The conventional explanation about why law has increased is really kind of interesting, and maybe the most interesting part of the lecture, though it's not my topic. The conventional explanation uh, is something like this. That once upon a time, our ancestors, you know, lived in the forest and roamed around in very, very small bands, and uh, they hunted, and then eventually they developed technologies where they would uh, come together either because of fishing or because of agriculture in general. They started living in more crowded ways and they got closer together and that led to a lot of advances. You know, 20 people living in one place can really invent things and share information and pass it on generation to generation. And we still have evidence of that to this day. It's a great uh, area to think about. Some of you have studied this in your undergraduate education, uh, no doubt. And the idea there is that as people lived in more compressed communities, or whatever you want to call it, they also had conflicts. You know, they might have needed property rights. Uh, to take one example, like I grew this crop. In the beginning, maybe I shared it with you. After a while, there are like 150 of us living in one place. And there are some free riders who come, just take my crops, and then I don't have an incentive to grow them anymore. So law and some other things developed. Uh, family life, you know, developed. Other things developed that really gave people an incentive to keep growing crops. And law seems to have grown and had a lot to do with people living in compressed areas. You know, when people live in cities, for example, their standard of living goes way, way up. They really invent things and pass on things generation to generation. I mean, no other animal can compete with us on this. Like, we really are amazingly good at being together in groups and then passing on information and inventing things, all things that, you know, long, long ago, people would have thought, no, that won't work. If they live together, they'll starve, they'll have to go too far to get crop food and all that. But actually, we've overcome all that, and our standard of living has gone up, and that's why virtually every one of our graduates goes to live in a big city, because you see this progress in cities. Like, where else can you get Starbucks and other important things that explain the survival of humans and their dominance of the, of the planet? So, that's not a bad explanation for the growth of law. Uh, it's not obvious that that works so well. I mean, you could think of things way ahead of me about that, like cities continue to grow, but law seems to be growing faster than cities. Living in cities has gone up in price, not down in price. I mean, there's a lot of complexity to this. But I don't want you to go away without the conventional explanation that law grows because people live in compressed areas, and that requires uh, a lot of law. I, I, I don't mind that. I, I kind of like that explanation. I've done like one and a half Greenbergs about it. I mean, I find it very interesting. I think there are other explanations. But, uh, for example, maybe people were easier to tax if they lived in cities and other things. So there are a lot of things going on there, but I want to go to a different explanation today, if that's okay uh, with you. So the explanation uh, I want to advance today um, is that uh, you can think of it as a parallel explanation. I don't want it to compete with the first one, although when we get to questions and answers, I suspect you'll have more questions about the first one than the third one, so to speak, that I want to introduce uh, now. And the third one, the new one, is something like this that law uh, changes preferences. Maybe that's a good way to think about it. Like uh, you grow up and you're in a society and then there's a lot of law around you and the more laws around you, the more you notice the good things that law can do or the law saves you some things that you find personally unpleasant or dangerous or whatever and then you outsource to law. I mean, that's really the way I want to think about it. Like why do we outsource things to law and is there any end to that? And as you could tell from my title, like, have we become addicted to law? Yeah, obviously, my answer is going to be yes. Uh, you have become addicted to law. Maybe I not so much, but I think I'm in the tiny minority on this, and I want to defend where I am, and I want to criticize where you are, so to speak. That, that's not true. I don't want to criticize it. I want to, in fact, say that it's inevitable, and it'll keep uh, growing. And here's where I'm going to go uh, about that. So I, I just want to make sure you understand where I'm going. You have to first accept the idea that there could be too much law. Like, what does it mean? Like, t 
too much iPhones? Like, that doesn't really make sense. But uh, what do I mean by an addiction? So I want to explain what I mean by that to make sure we have no, uh, you know, after-the-fact complaints and go back to it over and over. So some things change over time, and I don't think of it as an addiction. So here's how I want to define addiction. Like, uh, if you came to me in an earlier time period, I guess I could say T1, but that would turn off some people in the room. So, you know, if you came to me at an earlier age and you said to me, uh, you know, at a later age, you'll become a vegetarian. I would say, "Eh, I don't think so. I kind of like chicken, meat, or whatever. Uh, But uh, if you tell me that I'm going to become vegetarian, you know, 20 years later, like, okay, I could see that. My preferences might change. Actually, I like the idea that I might change over time. I like change. So that's fine. If you tell me, you know, in the future you'll like a certain kind of music, that I, and I'll say, you know, I hate that kind of music now, again, that's fine with me. I mean, I like my preferences change. You'll like travel. Again, I like my preferences change. But there are some things where if you told me that I was going to have this preference, this taste in the future, I think I would take steps to prevent it. And those are things that I want to call addictions. For example, if you told me at an early age, you know, uh, we can predict through a variety of means that uh, in the future, you're really going to spend 12 hours a day consuming drugs. I think I would say, boy, like, show me the evidence of that. And if the evidence looked pretty compelling, I would try to take steps now to prevent my being on drugs, you know, taking drugs 12 hours a day, presumably being on drugs uh, 24-7. If you told me that in the future I'd become a killer, uh, I don't mean of bugs, I mean like of students, um, you know, I'm pretty sure that I would take steps not to do that. I might even hire somebody to follow me around. I certainly would hire somebody to prevent me from buying weapons. I mean, I would do a lot of things to prevent that in the future. And certainly even things that are closer to the margin. I mean, if you told me that I would become a smoker, pretty sure I would take steps, if that was possible, not to become a smoker. I mean, there are some drugs I could take to make the early smoking seem really repulsive. I think I would take that and, and so forth. So I think people get the idea, at least your facial expression, you get the idea, is that even people who like the idea that their preferences will change in the future and are open to it, are not open to all of their preferences changing in the future. Some of them, the me in time period one, will not want some me's in time period two, and I might really take steps to prevent that. And uh, that's what I mean by addiction. I mean that if I tell myself in time period one, you know, uh, you'll spend a lot of time in court and a lot of times with judges and legislatures running your life in time period two, I think a lot of us in time period one would say, no, I think I want to take steps to prevent that. So that's what I mean by an addiction, and that's what I'm going to try to describe, that uh, there's going to be a lot more law in the future, and there's a lot more now than there was 30 years ago, and certainly 100 years ago. And actually, I think there are good reasons to think that this is a bad thing, and that if people knew that was coming, they would take steps to prevent that. So again, that's what I mean by an addiction, and I I hope that that's uh, pretty clear. Again, this won't make sense to you, if you don't accept that, so I'm going to assume that you uh, accept that. And by law, maybe I just mean they're like outsourcing decisions or steps or human interaction uh, to the government. Now, um, how am I going to tie this to Chicago's best ideas? Well, that's easy. I want to tie it to the Coase theorem, familiar, I assume, to everybody in this room. The Coase theorem is probably Chicago's best idea ever. It was, by the way... uh, invented and first written in this very building. Uh, Can you believe it? Like, are you like me, having a chill run down your spine right now? (laughs) Like, that's really uh, pretty good. Uh, A lot of things were invented in this building, but we're just going to do one of them today. So Ronald Coase, like, was in this building, and uh, he had this idea that, you know, maybe a lot of legal rules might seem to matter, but only in an early period, because... If you and I didn't like the legal rule governing our relationship with one another, for 9 out of 10 legal rules, not murder, for example, but for 9 out of 10 legal rules, if law, say, got property rights or something like that wrong, so to speak, that is, it misassessed how much it was worth to you and how much it was worth to me and whether they were making us both better off and all that, then, for example, if law favored you and I, I couldn't cross your front lawn, 
I could go to you and I could say, you know, I'd really like to cross your front lawn. It'll get me to work much faster. I'll try not to trample on your flowers. If I do, I'll pay you for them. How about if I pay you $500 a year, allow me to cross your front lawn? And as long as law allows that, as long as law is at least strong enough to enforce those contracts, that bargaining around the rules, as we call it, would be fine. You'd be better off getting the money. Your front lawn's only worth 100 bucks to you. I'd be better off because I want to get to work faster. It might be worth $5,000 to me. But it would have to bargain. All right, you were all, I think we're all familiar with that. So that idea that, you know, what law does in most cases is offering kind of initial starting positions is what we often say about it. Again, not all law, but in most of law, at least between people, which will be my concentration here, uh, the Coase theorem gets you started, and then you can bargain around the rule. It's not that simple. I mean, how is that going to... You might at first think, I think you should at first think, oh, wait a minute, how's he going to fit this in? It's going to run in the wrong direction. Like if the Coase theorem works, so to speak, then we should be moving to less law. After all, if the rule doesn't matter, you know, whatever the Coase theorem does, whatever law is, people can bargain around the rule, then maybe people just won't care about law that much. They won't put a lot of effort into law because they can just always bargain around. They're like, what do I care what the law does? I'll just get around the rule. So it might be that the Coase theorem would explain a drop in law rather than an increase in law. Uh, I think, however, it's the other way around, or it doesn't matter. But let me just make the case for the other way around. The other way around goes something like this. Like, we know that we can bargain around rules, but the bargain is going to be very different depending on that initial position. You know, if law gives you the right to control your front lawn, then I'll pay you for me to cross your front lawn. On the other hand, if law gives me the right to cross your front lawn, say, so long as I don't do great damage to it, then you might pay me not to cross over your front lawn if you value privacy or you pay money to build a fence or whatever it is you do to get around the world. So all of that might require us to say, well, wait a minute, I don't know that we can strike a bargain yet. In order to strike a bargain, we need to know what the law is so we know whether you or I will end up with the money and how to bargain around the rule. So in an odd way, once people adjust to a kind of Coase theorem world, I mean, they don't know that they're doing the Coase theorem stuff they just know that they're sometimes paying and sometimes getting money and so forth. But once the evolution of people adjusts to this idea that you can bargain around most rules, maybe actually people will develop a pension for, well, tell me the rules. I think that is a lot of what we do. Like a lot of people will say, I really like legal certainty. I really want to know what the law is. And I think what they're really getting at is, well, I want to know so I can structure my life. Maybe here in Chicago we should say, I want to know what the rule is so I'll know whether to adjust my life to it, or to bargain around it, or to move locations to another legal system, or uh, whatever it is. So I actually think understanding the Coase theorem can be coordinated with the growth in law. But I want to set it aside for a moment, although we might uh, come back to it if we have uh, time. So, um, you know, another way to think about it, by the way, would be to say, uh, I, I told myself don't go there, but I'm going to go there anyway. Another way to think about it is that this whole Coase theorem stuff might depend on transaction cost. It might be that, you know, that, that probably would be the easy thing to say. I could say, well, once people learn that they can bargain around the rules, and then you say to me, well, why did law grow over time? Like, what's the answer to your opening question? I would just say, well, I guess transactions costs grew. It became more expensive to bargain because maybe your time is more valuable, or maybe people hold out for more money, or whatever it is, or maybe... People from various countries come live in one place, and then they don't speak the same language, so transactions costs grow. There are a lot of reasons to think that the transactions cost of bargaining might grow in various parts of society. And once that happens, uh, then you might get more law. You could see that. It's sort of like the Coase theorem is interfered with, so to speak, because it's harder to bargain around the rules, and therefore we want to get the rules right, and therefore we lobby and hire more judges and more legislatures and all that, in order to get the rules solid. I mean, that might be another way to coordinate what I'm about to say with the coast there. Okay. I've learned uh, over many years of teaching that you can only talk about the coast theorem for three minutes at a time. <laughs> and then people get this look in the face like, oh, boy, here we go. Not again. You know, like, okay, so I got the idea. You got your three minutes. Now we'll move away from the coast theorem. But 
of all the things that I'll say today, that's probably the thing you should take away and think about in the middle of the night when you have, uh, when you're dying to think about uh, law. So let's return to our central uh, question about why people might develop a preference for more law and that, you know, why that might uh, be. I've already suggested that people might see the danger of developing an addiction to law, though I haven't quite explained, if you knew there was an addiction, then, okay, you're addicted, there's going to be more law in the future, right? If you smoke and you have an addiction to smoking, we kind of know that over time you'll need more and more smoking to satisfy your habit. If you're addicted to gambling, maybe the most studied addiction, it's really amazing how, say, people who kind of really get into online gaming or poker, like it is, you can really watch, like there are very, very few people who sort of get addicted to it, meaning they're really into it, they can't live without it, and then over time they can gradually reduce their online gaming or their um, gambling or whatever. Usually you need more of the thing in order to get the high or whatever it is that you get. It's not clear, by the way, in the science about why some things you need more of in order to maintain your addiction, your high, and some things you need less of. Uh, but it's true. I mean, I, there are some funny examples in the literature. For example, most of us are addicted to having people care for us. I mean, maybe at your age you might call it love. <laughs> so, okay, most people have an addiction. They want to be loved. If they're not loved, they'll really just move mountains to try to get love. But the evidence seems to be that once you feel loved, you don't need more and more and more of it. Like, okay, I'm loved. She remembers my birthday. That's pretty good. You know, it's pretty good. You don't need, like, more and more presents every year or more and more spouses every year. Uh, you know, like, it, it's actually interesting. I, I know this sounds crazy, but across the midway, they actually study things like this uh, at government expense, if you can believe it. Uh, but you get the idea. There are some things that you are addicted to and they grow and grow and grow and some things that you're addicted to and there's like a stable thing but almost nothing that you get addicted to that decreases uh, over time. Indeed, maybe we wouldn't call that an addiction uh, in the first place. So let me give you an example and even a little bit of personal history about it but I'll try to stay away from that. So here's an example. Imagine like uh, 10 neighbors living near one another. You know, they live in a community and then uh, one of them is disturbing the others. This is sort of a common uh, example. So one of them, you know, throws loud parties once in a while, and the other people can't sleep, and they're really annoyed, and all that sort of thing. So uh, I think in 1800, I mean, I'm picking that year carefully because I've been trying to read the literature about this, but in 1800, you know, one of the neighbors who really hated the noise would go to the noisemaker, as I'll call him, and they would say, look, you know, like it's kind of nice that you have friends and you have parties, but they're very, very noisy. You know, maybe you could try to tell people the party ends at 1 a.m. Or maybe you could try to move the party to that side of your house so it wouldn't make so much noise. You know, they would try to come up with solutions that wouldn't say, you got to get rid of all your friends and never have a party again. I mean, that wouldn't be, ex they bargained, maybe is a way to think about it. And they would try to go to their neighbor in, a, I guess, in a non-confrontational method. Probably some people were very confrontational. Quite those parties anyway, I'll kill you. You know, that might, I guess it might work, but most people don't take that strategy up. So they would go bargain with their neighbor, and they would try to convince the neighbor, look, for the sake of the community, maybe you can make a little bit less noise. You notice there are a lot of legal things going on here, though this is done outside of law. For one thing, if you have a very noisy neighbor, say in 1800, or a neighbor that, you know, blows things up and shoots fireworks or whatever it is, you might think, well, I'm not going to go there because then that neighbor might not like me. They might say bad things about me. And besides, there are ten of us, who are nine of us, who are really annoyed by this noise. You know, I'll count on Lovemore to go talk to him. He's kind of a confrontational guy. And, you know, why should I, Smith, go talk to this guy and tell him to be quiet? You know, Levin will do it. So there's a free-riding problem. But, you know, generally speaking, people overcome that. The common way the literature suggests they overcome it is they gossip. So gossip, as you know, is a very powerful tool. And, you know, even the noisemaker can hear people gossiping about other things. And then they realize, oh, they're probably gossiping about me, too. What would they be gossiping about? Oh, 
I have a kid that shoplifts. They probably don't like that. You know, I better control my kid shoplifting. Oh, I have these unbelievably raucous parties on Saturday night. You know, I will try to end them at 1 a.m. and I'll advertise that to my Oh, you know, sorry about that noisy party. You know, I have a new rule. Everybody out by 1 a.m. And then they'll gossip about me and say what a good person I am. And that's what, oh, that's the love thing. That's what most people want. It's for other people to think they're a good person. It goes all the way back about living together in close communities. You want people to accept you into the community, not to outcast you or kill you or whatever they did. There was a lot of that 10,000 years ago. I mean, they don't, they don't want to be disapproved of. In fact, there's a lot to be gained by being approved of. They'll take you on hunts. They'll share food with you. They'll you know, do a lot of good things with you. So people want this kind of approval. That's probably by now built into our genetic system, the evidence seems to show, but I think it's intuitive. And so gossip plays a powerful role in running a society. And you might think, well, I don't really have to control, go confront my neighbor, because I'll just gossip about him. Oh, can you believe the noise? You know, and then eventually either word will get back to him that we're gossiping about him, or he'll figure out by the fact that people don't want to do as much coordinated business with him. You know, so gossip was very powerful say, in 1800 or in our law school today. I mean, gossip is really, you know, very, very powerful. But, you know, it might not be enough to overcome these collective action problems. Again, so one problem is that I might think somebody else will solve the problem. On the other hand, that might be offset by some coordinated uh, gossip regime. But it might not be enough. You know, we can all think of examples like that where gossip doesn't quite do the job and people might think, oh, it's my right to make a lot of noise. I'm going to make as much noise as I want. Who cares that they all gossip about me? I'll gossip about them. Can you believe that? Nosy body over there thinks I shouldn't be making noise. Doesn't he know what a good time is? I mean, the gossip works both ways and doesn't always work. Or maybe they'll join a religion that favors noise or is anti-noise. I mean, religions can be thought of as an organized form of gossip, if you will. Like they're, I mean, that in a nice way. They're like shared value system and you talk about people who don't conform to the value system or, or whatever. Okay. So I think you see where I'm going, which is uh, there's a big transformation here, which is that uh, nobody, I mean nobody, went to the law in 1800 and said, my neighbor's making a lot of noise with parties, you got to stop it. It was inconceivable. Like the way to confront the problem was either gossip, I know I've said that a few times already, or you go to the neighbor and you try to talk about it. You could think of it as confrontation or personal solution or, or whatever. So, uh, but that's changed. And that's what I want to discuss for a few minutes before uh, beginning to wind down with some observations about law. So, uh, I don't know, I got a couple of examples of this. So, um, when I grew up, it was like a lower middle class community. I don't think anybody ever called the police for anything, but people self-helped. You know, if the neighbor was making a lot of noise or the kid was raucous or a little criminal, they would go across the street and turn off the lights, the city lights over there. Or they would go confront the person. They would go across the street, talk to the parents and say, you know, your kid's going to grow up to be a criminal. They're doing this, they're doing that. You know, you probably ought to bring a stop to it. Once in a while, they would do a little violence. They'd go across the street and uh, break a bicycle or something, like as a message. Uh, you know, rarely, but they would sometimes uh, do that. Usually, they would go talk. Uh, I now live in a building that's much more upscale, and uh, nobody ever confronts neighbors. There are, we had a neighbor, the kids would scratch the elevator, the kid would do, they would go up on the deck upstairs and like play war games, and they could have fallen off and then sued the building. The building just closed down the upstairs. You couldn't go there anymore. Nobody ever went to these people and said, you know, you got these two out of three kids that are kind of problems. And it was like, oh, my God, like that would be really terrible. But they did go to the board, 20 families. They would go to the board and they would say, oh, you know, we need to have a rule. Try not to make it obvious that I told you to have a rule against this family. We should have a rule that you can't do this. And if they can't do that, then the building finds them. And that's exactly what happened. There is no, everything is solved by these rules, by law, and it's enforced by real law. That is, they put a fine on you, and then you owe it in your monthly assessment, and then if you don't pay the full monthly assessment, the law can come into play. They can take away your building, you know, your house from you, your apartment from you. Like, it's very law-oriented. Much more than when I was a child. Again, when I was a child, complete 
interpersonal solution as an adult, a complete appeal to law. Like it's considered super uncool to go confront somebody uh, else. Here's another example that might hit, um, I don't know, more close to home for some of you, less for others. So uh, I've had this happen many times in life, but here's my last event. I'm walking down the street on 55th Street near my house. And um, across the street, there's like a couple really screaming at each other. I mean, they're heading for violence. So I don't, I don't need to give you the details, but they don't live on the block. I mean, I didn't know these people. But they're really heading for violence, and these people are like beginning to form on the sidewalk, watching this couple they didn't know. And the guy is getting very, very aggressive, you know, beginning to poke his finger. Oh, I'll tell you, you know, it's really, you, you can picture it. You've all poked people like that. Um, and they're heading for some kind of violence or assault or something like that. And I'm with my spouse and one of my children, and there are other people watching. And I start crossing the street to go to this couple. And that's sort of the way I was brought up. Like, yeah, I was going to go to them, and I, you know, I was thinking about what's my plan. You know, and I was going to say, uh, is everything okay here? You know, anything I can help with to try to, like, calm them down a little bit? Or my alternative would be, you know, I feel like you should know that uh, there's some people watching. I mean, by then, there are, like, 20 people watching. <laughs> there's some people watching, and a couple of them have called 911 because it looks like, you know, they're a little nervous that something bad is going to happen here. So you should just know that the police are on their way. I didn't know that to be true, but it did turn out to be true that someone had called on 911. And it's getting louder and louder and louder. And as I'm crossing the street, a neighbor and my spouse and my older child are like pulling me back. <laughs> Whoa, what are you doing? Where are you going? Like, you know, it's dangerous to go intrude. Like, oh, you know. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, it's the moral thing to do. Like, what's the danger? I'm not going to go right up to the guy in his face. I'm going to be like five feet away. I'm going to say these things very gently. They were like super opposed uh, to this. I think we all have this experience. I mean, restaurants, when people on the next table are making a racket, very, very few people, including me, would go to the table and say, you know, like you're ruining it for everybody else. We would either hope the restaurant would do that, although there are reasons why they might not do that. By the way, what I find successful is to go to the other table. I learned this from law students doing this to my office. Go to the other table and say, you know, I just think you should know that everybody can hear you. So, you know, <laughs> you, you probably don't want to say as many things about other people or private things you think. That usually really, really works well. People will think, oh, like... We're bad-mouthing somebody. Maybe gonna, you know, they'll get the hint without your saying, you know, it's just a hint about life. You don't have to take it if you want. So looking back, I think when I went across the street and I told this guy basically to stop it by making believe the police were coming or by saying, is everything okay? You know, blah, blah. So actually, I think that, um, I don't know, did, did he want me to come over and slow him down? I'm not sure. I mean, it was better that he didn't know me. Right, I think if I were a neighbor of his, he would think, oh, this is confrontational, we're going to face each other again. I think I was almost like a police officer without a threat. Like, okay, you know, he can then say to his girlfriend or whatever, I think that was the relationship, he can say to her, well, I guess we're going to talk about this tomorrow, or something like that. Like, oh, you know, the police are coming, or, you know, hey, this guy, this is intrusive guy is over here. You know, it's possible that a lot of times we actually want people to solve our problem, and I think that's part of the role of law. It happens in this case that the, a police officer came and the police officer went out and looked at me and looked at this couple and did exactly the same thing I did. You know, went over and said, everything okay? Uh, and they went, yeah. And, and the, the guy didn't continue screaming. He said, well, you know, uh, a lot of people are watching. You know, maybe you ought to take this fight elsewhere. And then, you know, she jumped into her car and drove off and he, I don't know, like, Cold Uber. I don't know what he did. They're, they had come in the same uh, car. So I think this is the key to outsourcing. That, uh, so notice the contrast here. One is that I did not outsource it. It happens in this case that it was effective. Maybe my family was right, and the next time I do it, the guy will put out a gun and shoot me. Like, you know, that's possible. I mean, some people don't want it. There is some risk to intruding. Though, as we know, there's also some risk to the law intruding. Right, the officer can come over and be shot, or the officer can come over and shoot them. You know, it'll be abusive, like we're familiar with these problems. It's not clear that you always want law over there. 
It, but it's close call. In any event, the modern norm, the old norm, was nobody would have called the police 40 years ago in this situation. I mean, for one thing, they wouldn't have had smartphones. Calling the police was a lot of work back then. They might have, if they saw a patrol car come by, oh, 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 oh. But uh, now it's much easier to call the police, so there's much more outsourcing. So I don't mean to make it a technological explanation. So let me just say what I think is the more general thing before I get all carried away with it. It's something like uh, it's very convenient to go to law, to go to courts, to go to the police, whatever, and there is always some tiny risk of going to the neighbor yourself or intruding yourself. And so people like going to the law even though, and then, of course, when you see other people going to the law, then your family starts pulling you back and says, well, everybody else is going to the law. You should go to the law, too. Like, there's some risk on you. And then over time, more and more people outsource to the law. So outsourcing to the law becomes the norm. And maybe even the guy that's being targeted begins to think, oh, it's okay for law to come to me. They're not going to throw me in jail for screaming at someone and poking my finger in her, in her shoulder or whatever. They'll just break it up. That's okay with me. Maybe better than a neighbor doing it or whatever. I mean, maybe that everybody likes it. Maybe even that he is happy for law to grow. You know, I don't know. But over time, you get more and more law because people are less and less accustomed to breaking things up. By the way, probably what I should have done to make my family happy would be to go over there with a few neighbors. I probably should have said, do you mind going with me? Like, it'll be safer in a group. Uh, in the community that I grew up in, like, you would never do that. It would be, like, you know, wimpy. And besides, like, what's the harm going to be? You're going to go over there and be five feet away. Go, hey, you know, you're really making a loud, you know, you, you guys should take it elsewhere. And besides, the police are coming. Like, I think the risk to me was close to zero. Uh, but, you know, you, you get the idea. I mean, your family might think there's more risk. It might be easier to call 911 and, you know, make believe you're somebody else. You don't even have to give your name. Though they could trace the call if they wanted to. I could have grabbed the phone of the woman next to me who's like screaming and called 911 from her phone. You know, there are a lot of things you can do to avoid being traced and to report uh, law. So uh, I, I think you get the message, which is that people resort to law. And then the more they resort to law, the more and more they resort to law. And the more both sides begin to think that law is the solution. I really think that if you said to them 20 years in advance, you know, law is going to grow so much that we're going to have five times the number of police officers, even though they're going to have cars. We're going to have five times the number of judges, even though they can settle cases and all that. We're going to have ten times the number of prisons. Uh, You happy with that future? I think almost everybody would say, but they might say, that's, that's not going to happen. That's very, very costly. And then you might say, oh, it's going to be even more costly than you think. Like, we're going to spend a higher and higher proportion of our money on building up this legal system. And that's what it's going to look like. That's what time two is going to look like. There'll be more law. And, you know, time three will probably be even more so. Because as people go to law... They think more law. More people will go to law school. More people want to be prosecutors and defense attorneys and all that. I mean, we're all part of this problem. It's like we come to like law. Whenever there's a problem, we think, oh, the government will solve it. Whenever someone says to us, you know, the government made it worse. You know, think about schools, for example. I'm going to sound a little bit like Todd Henderson now, but um, I don't know. You know, think about schools. It's actually a very interesting example. Like, we had schools. We spent money on schools. We spent a fair amount of money on schools. We were like number one in the world in all sorts of school performance. And then it goes down and it goes down and we go to number five and number ten. And people's solution is, well, we need to spend more money on schools, get more government involvement in schools. And then we do that and we do that. And now we spend you know, twice as much money as any other country in the world per person. And our performance drops, drops, drops. And most people's reaction is, well, we just need to spend more money on that. And we need to have smaller classes, smaller... Like, it's very... It's addictive. Like, the more you think government is the solution, probably in some of these areas, government is the solution. But the more you spend money on government as a solution, the more sometimes the government solves the problem, sometimes it doesn't solve the problem. And then it occurs to all of us, well, I guess if we had more law, spent more money on it, probably we would do a better job. Maybe we're not spending enough money on it. And then... Countries that spend a lot of money on schools, when their ratings drop, 
they spend more money on schools. And this is very, very common across the spectrum of law. Law, again, just to repeat the title, law becomes addictive. Now, it might be that you're ready uh, to say, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about all this outsourcing? Uh, but by the way, I just think it's true about law, just to make this clear. I think it's true about everything, this human interaction thing. So, for example, I'll give an example that'll appeal to you, and pretty much your generation example. So, like, uh, even 25 years ago, like, um, when couples met one another, they, like, uh, they would insource rather than outsource. They would do things together. They would go to movies together. You know what movies are? It's like this theater. There's a theater out there, and you go there, and then it's full of people like me. (laughs) You know, it's got a bunch of old guys, and then you tell your kids, oh, this was a really good movie, and they go, oh, you know, well, I'll watch it when it comes out on Netflix. Uh, It's really interesting to watch. So I don't want to call that outsourcing and insourcing, but I am interested in how people meet each other. So they would go to movies together, and then they'd go to dinner, and they'd talk about the movie. That was like a common thing in my generation. Well, actually not true. They would go to dinner together. First, they would complain about their parents, and then they would talk about the movie. (laughs) That was sort of what a relationship was. Uh, But in your generation, aside from the fact that you all seem to love your parents, which is very sweet. I mean, I feel like I was was born at the right time. In your generation, you've outsourced it. You go to Starbucks. Like, oh, we, you know, we don't really want to do anything personal. Like, we, you know, we'll like go somewhere safe. It's really like my family pulling me from across the street. Oh, you never know who you might go out with. Might be a rapist. Might rob, might take my wallet. Of course, your wallet doesn't have any money in it anymore. I don't know what they're going to take it. But you outsource it, and you go to Starbucks. And people have relationships online and at Starbucks. I am not complaining about this, by the way. I think it's a very efficient way to meet people, and I can't get enough Starbucks in my life. But it's a very interesting parallel thing. It's outsourced to some way. Let Starbucks make the coffee for me. Uh, rather than, I mean, now I read something like this recently. Like, it used to be that a very high percentage of dates, by the second date, one person cooked a meal for the other. And now, uh, to match the same uh, thing, they need to be married for a year. (laughs) That's an exaggeration. I mean, they need to go out, like, I think 11 times to have the same likelihood of cooking a meal together. That was very, very common to get in my ear, is you'd cook a meal together. Like, what a good way to get to know one another, we thought. Now it's outsourced. So I don't want to go into that, I mean, social observations. But again, I I don't want to make it sound like it's just law. I think we have all outsourced things, like trying to avoid actual personal interaction and the danger of something going wrong, and so law grows. And again, I think the more law grows, the more it will grow in the future. And I I don't think there's any stopping it, actually. I think uh, schools might be a good example. Our law school might be a good example. Certainly your generation is a good example. Uh, Every time there's a problem, people think more. More law uh, and so forth. So uh, I had more to say, but I think that's a good place to stop uh, for questions. Uh, In written work, I mean, I do offer some solutions to this. One possibility is that maybe when I go across the street to do a thing that law could do, and I try to break up a fight, one possibility is that maybe I should be rewarded. Uh, you know, almost like a restitution kind of thing. It might be that if you help solve problems, uh, maybe you should get rewarded by law. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, wait a minute. There'll be like a collective action problem, and there'll be, you know, all sorts of other problems. I'll get you. I'll pay you to start a fight. Then I'll go break it up, and I'll get money from the government. You know, what, what a great plan. Called a, a moral hazard. Wow. I don't know what torts class you're in, but you've obviously... You've, yeah, she's great. <laughs> she is. You've obviously been well-educated. I mean, there's a super more... Okay, well, maybe then try the opposite. Maybe if I don't go across the street to break up the fight, maybe there should be a little penalty. Now, I guess all 20 people have to get a penalty. We don't want all 20 rushing across... All 20 going across and saying, you know, it's time to quiet down. would actually be great for society. So, uh, I think there are solutions like that, and, you know, that's not the subject for the day. The problem to me is more, you know, and the same solution doesn't work in all areas. 
Uh, it probably doesn't work for schools. It probably doesn't work for uh, sexual assault on campuses. I mean, there are a lot, although there's other stuff written about that, like maybe rewarding people who do early reporting of abuse would be a very, very good thing for society. It's got a little bit of a problem, is that it might make the complainers seem even more nervous about not being believed because they're getting reward. But it's hard to be bad on that front. Professor Nussbaum and I have written about this, so I feel glued to the solution. I think actually rewarding people who report early might be a very good thing, even though it's got a little bit of a problem. And so I think there are solutions to this outsourcing, but as I say, I'd like to leave time for questions and answers, so I'll stop there. Please. I'm going to repeat the questions or butcher them or whatever. Yeah, so the question is, well, maybe it's self-correcting. Uh, maybe as we go to more and more law, the quality of judging goes down, or the quality of police force goes down, or maybe it's more obvious that they're doing some bad things, and people will therefore want less of them. Maybe it'll be uh, self-correcting. It's possible. Uh, it's hard to find any evidence of that in real life in any one of the areas I thought about. I mean, again, uh, people's response to schools, you know, 1% of the population says, boy, the schools are awful and I'm paying all those taxes, I'm going to homeschool my kids. But 99% of the people say, we've got to spend more money on schools, we've got to increase teachers' pay, we've got to have smaller class size, even though the evidence for those things is poor. So uh, I don't mean to pick on schools. But, uh, you know, it's kind of interesting. So I don't think we have any evidence for that, especially in law, like, it's very hard to think of examples where people said, boy, law is doing, for example, take police violence. No, I mean police, by police, not against police, but you could do either side. Uh, I, I don't think I've ever heard anyone or any newspaper say, you know, the police are committing a lot of violence. The obvious solution is to have fewer police. Like, m- wait a minute, well, why not? You know, maybe we should only have more highly trained police, or maybe this, or maybe that, or maybe there'd be more you know, interpersonal connection rather than going to the police. So it's very hard to think of examples where, you know, the army loses a war. Almost everybody says, we need a bigger army next time. Very few people say, you know, if we would stop having planes, other people wouldn't attack us. You know, it's very hard to think of examples where people solve the problem of more law by having less, less law. So, no, I guess is my answer. I just don't see that. Um... You know, you have uh, bad doctors. People say, well, we should require three more years of medical training in that specialty. For people to say, well, we need less law. We should require doctors to leave and go get experience after just two years of medical school. And then they'll learn. People will be less trusting of them. You just don't see that. People's solution over and over and over again is to have more licensing, more this, more specialization, more law, more law. I just, again, I think it is like drugs. Uh, Once you get addicted to it, you want more of it. Even though ex-ante, you know, in time period one, people would say, no, 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 I don't want to be addicted to drugs. Like, keep me from having drugs in the first place. It just doesn't seem to happen to law. Or, you know, maybe it's just too late. We're addicted enough to law that uh, there's no end uh, to it. I, I guess that's where I think we are now. Please. Rather than resorting to the law, we were going to instead uh, be more confrontational. Do you think we face a serious risk, short term or long term, of becoming more aggressive? So it's a good question. So let me just say at the outset, I hope it was obvious from my tone of a little bit making fun of myself, law has done a lot of fantastic things. I mean, we wouldn't be where we are now without law. You know, there's so many advances in law. You know, we have less A, B, C. You can name a thousand horrible things that we got rid of because of law and 2,000 great things that we got because of law. So I don't mean to say that all law and all expansion is bad. I mean, I, I hope I didn't give that impression. I mean, so much law got us to live in cities, promote things, and, you know, blah, 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 spend money on curing diseases. And, you know, like, on, I wouldn't be in my job if I didn't think law was great. Law is great. The problem is, you know, drugs are great. But 
Some drugs are great, some drugs are dangerous when taken too much. It's like a lot of things like that. Um, Some love is good. (laughs) You know, there are a lot of things like that. So I don't mean to say that. So, but I do take your question to mean, how do I know the right level of decrease? You know, if imagine that decrease was possible. Again, I've argued that I don't think it's possible at this point. But imagine that some decrease was possible. Aren't I afraid that just by giving my example of crossing the street to try to break up this pending assault, uh, maybe it'll just lead to more violence, or maybe more people will buy guns and shoot each other, or maybe this, or maybe that. I guess, I mean, I don't know, I, I, don't, I don't know which way it goes. I mean, the more we appeal to law, the more that also leads to more violence and more this and more that. So, I, I don't know, it's really hard to weigh. I mean, I guess the more we encourage personal interaction, it, you know, take my building, the dumbest example I gave. I don't know, like, you know, it's a free rider problem. People aren't counting all the time the volunteers who serve on these committees, who run the building, who pass these rules, who write them down. And, you know, like, it's an enormous expenditure of time. It's like law, really. It's like formal law. You know, so if we could save all those costs, or half those costs, in return for the tiny risk that some neighbors, rather than being grateful to one another for interceding about their children, would be angry and occasionally say, who are you to tell me about my kid? Pow! I mean, that's what you're imagining. I don't know. You know, nobody's hit anybody in my building and, you know, since 1917 when the building started. I, I, I guess I'm just not worried about that, really. So, I don't know. I guess, no. I don't think a good predictor of the amount of violence is the level of human interaction. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know your experience, but it's possible. And I guess we would adjust. You know, if there was more of that kind of violence, we'd no doubt make it against the law. Then we would circle back the other way. So I don't know which way the self-correction goes. I feel like I haven't answered your question, except to say, I don't know. I mean, it's possible, but the opposite is possible as well. You know, if I tried your argument on armies, and I said, don't you think it would be a good idea to be like one or two countries in the world that have no army? They say, yeah, we have no army. Like, what are you going to do? And then I said, you know, and you said, well, aren't you worried that if you have no army... Individuals will go across the border and attack people in the other country. They'll go to Canada and kill them because they don't have an army. They'll be more worried that Canada's going to attack them. It just sounds like, really? Like, you know, it feels like having the army there is very, very costly and might increase the probability of the army generals wanting to go to war to prove themselves, whatever. It just seems unlikely that cutting down your army but again, it's not a matter of increasing war. It's a matter of increasing human interaction that's violent. That just feels very, very hard uh, to believe. But I, I accept your point. It's possible. Please. Um, so you already said that it's hard to decrease the amount of law. This is from over time. Is there a way that we can standardize it, though, so that you get overexpanded, too overexpanded, keep going continuously? So the question is, maybe we could stabilize uh, the amount of law so there are attempts to do that. I mean, usually they're caused by interest groups that are really trying to be monopolies, right? Like medicine, not quite law schools, but you can picture almost. If you need to get licensed to open a, med- open a law school as you do a medical school, you sort of need a license to open a law school because you need to be approved to qualify people for the bar and all that. And it might be that the point of the bar exam is to try to limit the number of new lawyers. Like, why can't Australians just come here and take the bar exam? Like, you know, we do flatten out the number of lawyers to some extent. Of course, Australia doesn't allow you to go there and become a lawyer either. I don't mean to pick on us. So we are more open to their coming here than they are to our going there and, and, and so forth, just to be rah, rah, rah. <laughs> um, so it's hard to stabilize without creating monopolies, without the government getting into the business of creating monopolies and, and so forth. There, there are possibilities. I mean, you could say... Uh, we're never going to increase the number of judges. You get a backlog in that. Uh, mayors could go to office and say, I promise that we'll have a certain number of uh, police and never more. They'd probably get, lose elections. Uh, think of our law school. I mean, we have some terrific uh, employees, whatever you want to call them here, terrific lawyers. You know, I want to call them like lawyers, people who make decisions and run the place. You know, it's very interesting. So I was dean here for a while, and one of my pledges was, the number of faculty and the number of 
other people, professionals, will not go up. We're going to have the same number of people. So if you think we should have some more, a person in career services, we're going to have to let a, something go elsewhere. Because, as you know, it's the nature of universities to grow, 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 grow. Swimming pools for everyone. And, you know, like, and maybe that's part of the cost of education. Maybe it makes it harder for low-income people to go to law school. I mean, you could picture it. And so I kept my promise. You know, and the law school survived. We renovated the building. I mean, it left money for other things. Grew clinics. And, you know, I'm not here to comment myself. But, you know, there are obvious things you can gain if you don't increase the number of employees. But it didn't last. And I think for understandable reasons. Like, the next dean came in. That's not our present dean. The next dean came in, and people would say, well, you know, there's this problem with the law school. There's that problem. We don't have a course in this. And we have uh, some sexual misbehavior. And we have this, and we have that. And maybe we could solve discrimination problems by doing this. And the number of employees, you know, vastly grew. That's true of all universities. Uh, It's a little bit like law. Like, you might say, well, why didn't it work? Why didn't the next dean just say, well, let me do the Levmore plan of I take the number of employees. And well, you could see the answer, which is every intelligent person would say, why did Levmore think that the number of employees in the law school was optimal when he got there? I mean, it was itself a function of change. So why in the world would we think that freezing law now at its current level is right? Maybe it's now too high. Maybe it's now too low. So it doesn't seem like a good plan to me. It doesn't seem like it's politically correct. And probably it's not educational or intellectually correct, it's extremely unlikely that we have the right number of judges now. Probably it's too low or too high, and part of the battle is trying to figure out which it is. My claim only is that uh, optimism, if you will, or interest groups, or just your experience confronting neighbors, has made it grow, and once it grows, people always want more of it. Or maybe they look back to what I said before, that law has done a number, many, many wonderful things, so they're always imagining that it will be more wonderful in the future. So I don't think freezing it is correct, I mean, again, because we don't know what's the right level, and I don't think it's politically acceptable. I mean, there's so many things that you could freeze. Say I said we're going to freeze the number of courses in the law school, that would just seem absurd. Like there are new areas of law, you know, people have demand for new areas. It would just seem absurd to say, if you want to add a course, you've got to subtract the course. You know, it just seems intuitively uh, wrong. We have time for probably a few more questions. Please. Um, is this a uniquely American issue, or do you think all countries are susceptible to this addiction to law, different cultures? Yeah. It's a good question. Uh, I, I don't mean that the other ones weren't, but I mean, they were okay. Yours is really a good question. Uh, so I heard the question. It's like, is this uniquely an American thing? So there are many, many countries in which this is true. Uh, law is a growth industry in many countries. Here's why it's a little hard to study, because uh, it's hard to know what to make of corruption. So some people want to think of corruption. This is like more Chicago than even I am. Some people want to say, oh, most corruption is good. Like, corruption is like a market for change. And, uh, you know, if you have too much violence and you get a criminal gang and they punish people who commit violence in the wrong way, like, great. That's like outsourcing law to gangs. What's wrong with that? You know, that would be a good thing. Uh, like, it's not obvious that the legal rules are optimal, so overcoming those rules, you know, might be a good thing. And I think we can all think about that. Sometimes lawlessness is really good, and sometimes lawlessness is really bad. Like, we admi- looking back, we admire people who were lawless about slavery rules. We think, great, they did this, they did that. Like, they were forward-thinking, wonderful, you know, but then we look at other things. Uh, maybe we think the same thing, say, about uh, bringing goods into the country when there were high tariffs. Now, I don't mean to make it all about really, really important human things. Almost every area of law. But then there are other things where we think, oh, lawlessness is really terrible. Like, you know, you shouldn't drive 100 miles an hour on Lakeshore Drive, and, you know, we need to stop that, and it's going to kill more people and all that. And the fact that if you drive 100 miles an hour and you run somebody over, and then you give the judge, like, 300 bucks, and the judge says, don't do it again, we think it's terrible. So I think we don't know the right amount of lawlessness, if you want to call it that over there. It requires us, again, to think that the original laws were the right laws. Okay, So that's the problem of studying other countries. Like, we have some corruption, but we're pretty good on that scale. I mean, Switzerland has less. Other countries have more. In some of these countries, the corruption actually appears to be pretty good compared to the original law. Maybe the police for themselves 
had the wrong values or were corrupt and so forth. Very, very hard to know. So I think the quick answer would be yes, there's a growth of law everywhere. But the more sophisticated answer would be, well, there's a growth of law everywhere, but that's because law is a profitable industry because you collect bribes. So, you know, that's not a real law. That's just like putting more police at the border so they can take money from you before they let you escape the law that's behind them. So it's very hard uh, to study. It's very, uh, people try, but I, I don't think it works. I think uh, it's also, it's just very rare, just a dumb public choice kind of answer. It would be very unusual to have people who are elected officials or even more put themselves in office through violence or whatever. It would be very rare for them to say, well, now that I'm in power and all my cousins are in power, oh, and I let you elect a few thousand people, enough. We're going to cut it down by half and I'm going to fire all my cousins and there'll be no... I cannot hand down my office to the next person. That just seems like not human nature. That would be like law students voting, you know, we should cut down the number of laws as soon as I graduate. Like, it would be crazy. Like, no one's going to vote for that. Like, this is going to be your business. So you're going to be either part of the success or part of the problem. So I, I think that, I don't know the answer, but I think we get the idea. Uh, yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. Everybody hear the question? It was, sorry, it was a good question. Um, <laughs> what if I lived in my building? So I, a long time ago, what would happen? So knowing you would ask this, I've studied this uh, carefully, and uh, it was totally different. I mean, from 1917 to 1955, uh, there was essentially no meetings of the board of the building. They met once a year and just did things quickly. Uh, there was some interpersonal stuff, no violence, but people talk to their neighbors about the problem. By the way, don't think what you're thinking. No, no. They were not all old, rich, white guys. Like, my building is and was really quite diverse. Uh, so that hasn't changed over time. It's exactly as diverse now as it was then on many, many grounds. Age, race, income. I mean, there's a billionaire living in my building and also somebody who can barely afford the $3 million a month rent or whatever it is. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's highbrow, but it's got a lot of diversity in it in front of ways. And I've looked at this carefully, and you can see the records, and it was amazingly uh, different. It doesn't... Oh, and by the way, just to show you that I put work into this, I went back to my old neighborhood where I lived as a kid and tried to interview people. It was fun, actually. I took my uncle, before he died, on like a trip of our old neighborhood, and we banged on doors and went into the houses we had lived in to try to see what we had become of. You know, it was really very, very interesting. Uh... They were very shabby. I mean, it was interesting. There was one family that was still the same family, but it was mostly really interesting to go back to where you lived a long time ago and then think about how you misremember your own past. Stuff that my brother and I drew into walls, like to play baseball, were still there. You know, it was really kind of fun. Sent pictures to my brother. He was like all excited. Oh, is that what you came here to hear? Uh, (laughs) And uh, I stand by my word. It's very, very interesting. A call... Uh, law all the time they've put up like fences around all their yards the kids don't play in each other's yards anymore they call they spend a lot of money much more money on schools they don't let their kids go to the school playground we lived in the school playground and played basketball and baseball there no 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 bad things might happen to you you can't go there like it's totally changed they've become a law addicted society even more than where I live now it's really remarkable um now, you know, the level of crime went way, way up and then way down, like the rest of the United States. So, it's, you know, maybe law should get credit for it. I don't know. But, I mean, the answer to your question is, it's amazingly true almost everywhere in the United States that we know of, unless gangs for temporary times have taken control of it. One more question, and then uh, we're going to say goodbye. Oh, you've been so patient. So, I want to briefly push back on the idea that... Oh, I'm sorry. We're done with questions. <laughs> okay, go ahead. I wanted to briefly push back on the idea that the amount of law we have now might be inefficient or suboptimal. We need more. We analogized it to like someone who smokes cigarettes. If they were told, you know, five years down the line you'll be addicted to cigarettes, they'll say no. But there are a group of people who if you told them that, they'd say yes, the enjoyment I get from cigarettes is worth that. 
and no, the, the amount of, the pleasure I will get from cigarettes. Yeah. Again, they don't know that yet. No. Now they're just smoking like once a week, and we tell them, how would you feel if you were doing this every day for 12 hours? My prediction is that almost everybody would say, I don't want to be that person. But some economists in the vein of like Gary Becker would say that people can rationally choose that, to go on well, I'm just predicting that at time one, they would say, I don't want to be that person. I've read Becker, and I don't want to be that person. <laughs> Try it out. Try it out on people. You know, they rationally might want war, but if you go to people now and you say, how would you feel about the United States being involved in five wars a year with, you know, 300,000 people being killed every other year, and that's what it'll look like in 10 years? Nobody would say, great, because Gary Becker says that will be our preferences. No, no, no. I think people can make guesses about their future selves. They might be wrong, but the point is they would do things now to prevent that future self thinking that they know something about their future self. That's exactly my claim. It's not really contrary to the fact that... I'm just saying at time one, they would want to rule out certain things at time two. And that's where we were 30, 40 years ago. Like if you told them 30, 40 years ago, you know, we're going to spend that much money on law in 30 or 40 years, I'm confident they would have said, that's terrible. Even though law is going to do some good things, having that much law that every time your neighbor makes noise, you call the police, this would be crazy. Just go talk to your neighbor. The people at the... By the time you're my age, when there's noise in a restaurant, you're going to call 911. <laughs> I mean, do you want to live in that world? That's really the question. I think everybody would say, that's nuts police rushing into restaurants. That's really what's happened to our society. And so, Mike, even though in 10, 20 years, people who make a lot of noise in restaurants, people next door to them might say, no, I love it the way it is. I think now we're sure they would vote that they don't want that world, they would spend less money on law. That's entirely my claim. It's not that all addictions are bad, it's that most people, addiction is that people now want to stop what will happen later, and law is kind of an exception. They have allowed law to grow, 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 grow in many areas for the good and in many areas for the bad. So, thank you so much. Don't forget to go to your next class. This audio file is a production of the University of Chicago Law School. Visit us on the web at www.law.uchicago.edu.